My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new around here, it's great to have you with us. Um, I'm going to jump right in today. We got a lot of material to cover this morning. Uh, we have been for the last number of weeks exploring the life um, of a guy named Joseph in the scriptures. And this is one of the most incredible, amazing, exciting stories that you can read. Um, I have just been thrilled. I could go on and on in this series for weeks and weeks and weeks, but all good things have to come to an end. Next week will be our final uh, message in this series. But today, um, we, we pick up the story uh, kind of close to the end, and um, it's been a fun journey. But let me just give you, in case you need a reminder, or in case you've missed a few weeks, a recap on where we are and where we've been. We started in the land of Canaan, which um, is a land kind of right over in the Middle East and near where Israel is today. And uh, a family is there. A guy named Jacob lives in Canaan with his family. He has 12 sons. So you can already tell there's going to be trouble. Uh, Joseph is son number 11, and he's the favorite son. He's daddy's favorite. He's given this special ornate robe as just one example of how much his dad loves him even more than the other boys. And then Joseph has some dreams, some dreams where he will rule over all of his family, and they will bow down before him. And so he decides to share these dreams with his brothers. They don't like it. They beat him up, and they sell him to some traveling merchants who take him to Egypt, where he is sold as a slave. So life takes a bit of a turn for Joseph. But as a slave, Joseph learns to trust God. And he has some ups, and he has some downs, but eventually... He winds up in front of Pharaoh, the ruler of the entire Egyptian empire. And he stands in front of Pharaoh with this task to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And Pharaoh has had a few dreams. They're kind of strange. And one, there are seven fat cows and seven really, really scrawny, skinny cows. And the skinny cows eat the fat cows, but then they stay skinny. And by the way, if you've ever had skinny cow ice cream, this is where that name comes from. <laughs> no, that's, I just made that up. That is not true. Uh, but Joseph does interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And he tells him, you know, these dreams are about the economy, the Egyptian economy. And he says they're going to be seven years of economic growth followed by seven years of economic scarcity. And he presents Pharaoh with a plan for how to prepare for these, these lean seven years that are coming. And in summary, Pharaoh really likes Joseph. And he really likes Joseph's plan, so he decides to put Joseph in charge of this whole operation. This is Genesis chapter 41. It says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt, one of the most powerful empires in the entire world. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot. As his second in command, people shouted before him, Make way, make way. Thus, he put Joseph in charge of the whole land of Egypt. So, Joseph is doing pretty well for himself. He has been promoted from slave to second in command. And as time marches on, things go the way Joseph predicted they would. 
the way that God sort of helped Joseph interpret in, in Pharaoh's dreams. It says that the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. So things are going all right for Joseph. They're going well in the land of Egypt because of Joseph's leadership and his plan. But meanwhile, back home in Canaan, things have not been going so well. Last week we talked in particular about Judah Joseph's older brother and how Judah's life, unlike Joseph's, was not on a path of honoring God and trusting in him. And now as we pick up the story in Genesis 42, Judah's life and Joseph's life. Joseph's life and the brothers' lives are about to merge together once again because the famine has come and it has struck the land of Canaan and Jacob and his family are starving. Genesis chapter 42, we begin and pick up the story here. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Which I think is awesome. And you can already tell these kids are going to have dad issues, right? They need mending the soul for sure. Why do you just keep looking at each other? He said, he continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Well, right away in this moment, we can see with just a couple ingenious strokes of the pen how skillfully the author is showing us that, that this family, their dynamics are still, so many years later, quite unhealthy. Jacob implores his sons to go to Egypt to get food, but he will not send Benjamin, the youngest son. Why? Because he does not trust the other brothers. He has already lost one son who he sent to be with them, and he will not make the same mistake again. So the ten brothers go to Egypt without Benjamin, and there they find themselves standing before Joseph. Although, even though he recognizes them, they don't recognize him. And now the story is about to get good. Genesis chapter 42, verse 6. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Hmm, does that sound familiar? It's almost as if this story is coming full circle. And then something happens, right? They go before Joseph. They don't think it's him. They don't know it's him. They bow down before him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And instead of doing... What we might expect him to do, just telling them who he is, Joseph keeps his identity hidden. He pretends to be a stranger, and he actually speaks very harshly to his brothers. He accuses them of being spies, and so the brothers respond to this accusation. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. 
But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Now, as the readers, we of course are supposed to wonder, why doesn't Joseph just tell them who he is? Why doesn't he come clean? Why doesn't he kind of start this, this process of seeing them and celebrating with them? Or, you know, why doesn't he do something? Because isn't this really the moment he's been waiting for? Isn't this a moment that I'm sure he must have imagined or dreamed of all those years as a slave or sitting in prison? Because, I mean, he finally has the power. He has all the power. He clearly, in this moment, has the upper hand. So why does he not just sit back and say, well, 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 right? Look what we have here. Well, I'll suggest this to you, friends. Joseph does not do this because what Joseph wants more than revenge is reconciliation. And as this story continues, we are going to learn some things from him about what it means to reconcile, but what reconciliation is and what reconciliation requires. Because here's the other thing that Joseph doesn't do. Um, And I thought about this a lot this week. If I was Joseph, if I was him in this moment, how would I respond? And because, you know, he doesn't rub it in their face. He doesn't instantly use his power and authority to take vengeance and revenge on their lives. But he also doesn't do the other thing that you might expect him to do, the thing that I might be tempted to do if I were him. And that's just to rush right back into relationship with them, right? To say, brothers, I have missed you so much. And even though you were complete jerks to me and you ruined my life, it's all worked out in the end. And so I forgive you. Let's just be one big, happy family again. He does not do this. Because what Joseph pursues in this story is, again, reconciliation. He wants to reestablish relationship with his brothers. And friends, as Christ followers... We sometimes throw that word reconciliation around kind of glibly, actually in ways that can do a lot of harm. You see, here's a side note, but something to think about is this. You can forgive someone without them having done anything at all. You have full control, you have full power to offer forgiveness and to forgive people and parties in your life. They don't have to do anything. They don't have to apologize. They don't have to repent. They don't have to change. And you still have all the control. You have full power to forgive them, to free yourself from the bondage of hate and bitterness and resentment. You all on your own can choose forgiveness. Forgiveness can be one-sided. However, reconciliation is not. Reconciliation takes, and sometimes lots of it, emotional and relational work from both parties. Friends, I'm convinced that this is why reconciliation is not often pursued in our world. People choose almost anything else over reconciliation, especially when it's tough. People will choose alienation 
from people that they once loved and were close to. People will choose distance. People will choose bitterness, overt bitterness, or just deeply held inside of you bitterness. People will often choose, and maybe this is most common amongst church people, pseudo-surface level relationships instead of the hard work required by reconciliation. And the reason for that is, is simple. Reconciliation is extremely difficult. And this story actually teaches us just how costly genuine reconciliation is, how it takes time and true repentance and the very slow, methodical, step-by-step rebuilding of trust. So the brothers show up, and Joseph is not initially very nice. In fact, he throws them into prison for three days, and he says, fellas, meet the warden. We're buddies. Um, and he offers them this deal. He says, here's the deal. After three days, he says, I'm going to keep one of you here. I'll let nine of you go. I'll let nine of you go back to your land and to your father. And if you return with the supposed younger brother you speak of, then I'll know that you're not lying. I'll know that you aren't truly spies, and I'll let you all go free. But even as Joseph proposes this plan, the brothers are already stressed because they already know that their father Jacob is not going to respond positively to the news that they want him to send Benjamin back to Egypt with them. And so here comes this very, very poignant part of the story. Joseph offers the plan. He offers this deal to the brothers. And here's how they respond. It says this in verse 21. They said to one another... Surely we are punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Do you see how the author here is taking us back to that dreaded moment when Joseph was betrayed by them? You remember that in the initial story in chapter 37, we are never told about Joseph pleading for his life. We're told that he's thrown into the pit. We're told that he's sold into slavery. But, but we're never told that he pleads for his life. But here we get a glimpse. We're taken back in time just for a moment to understand and remember just how brutal this life event was. And we're reminded of the image of a young boy beaten and bloody in a pit pleading for his very life. And we hear once again his cries and his begs for mercy as the slave traders drag him away down the road, never to be seen again. And his brothers stand there. They do nothing. In fact, they turn and they walk away. In his greatest moment of need and shame and fear, they just ignore him. They turn and walk away and they will give him no hand at all. And the point is this. The author wants us to remember These are not just broken relationships. These are the most broken relationships you can imagine. This is hurt and pain and devastation relationally in a way that most of us can't even imagine. This is going to be reconciliation that is not easy, but extremely difficult. But we also see something else in these verses. We notice how... The brothers have shifted in the way they speak of Joseph. You remember back in chapter 37, they talked about him being dad's favorite or that dreamer. Remember as he approaches, they say, here comes that dreamer. But now, now all of a sudden here in this moment, they call him our 
brother. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep. You see, Joseph is starting to see that maybe a change has happened in their hearts over these last 22 years. He's seen that perhaps in that time there has been sorrow and regret and remorse over what they did to him and he thinks to himself, maybe, just maybe, reconciliation might be a possibility and it brings him to tears. Friends, I'll make a statement that at first may seem so, so simple and basic and yet I think it's essential for us to remember. Remorse is a very important part of the reconciliation process. Remorse is no small thing when you are seeking to reconcile relationships that have been hurt and damaged. One author says it this way, pain and distress over wrongdoing are an indispensable part of spiritual growth and moral health. And if somebody has wronged you or if you have wronged somebody else, to feel and express remorse is an, is an important and essential thing. Joseph has seen just a glimpse of remorse in his brothers, but he's not ready to fully trust them yet. So he decides to keep one brother. He says, I'm keeping Simeon. He has Simeon, Simeon bound right in front of them, right so they can see it. And then he loads them up with grain and he sends them on their way with this command. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And then we're told, this they proceeded to do. So they're going home. And just as kind of a pause, we get just a small glimpse of what Joseph is up to here. What he's doing is he's setting up a situation for himself where he can discover, have my brothers learned their lesson? Have they changed? Will they choose self-interest and safety over the freedom of Simeon, over the freedom of their brother? Or will they come back and will they risk their lives for him? Well, they get home and they tell their father Jacob what the situation is. And of course he says, no chance there's no way in the world I'm sending Benjamin. He is not going. And in this moment, we see something else. We see that things in this family still haven't changed too much. We see that, jo that Jacob is still playing significant favorites. And while he's willing to leave Simeon, one of his sons, to rot in an Egyptian prison, and he's also willing to send his other sons off into the face of danger, he will not risk his precious Benjamin. But the famine persists, and there's nothing else to do, so finally he relents and says, go back. And he reluctantly agrees to send Benjamin. And here's another thing we notice. If you read the story, you'll find that the brother who convinces dad, who convinces Jacob to send Benjamin with them, to trust them with him, which brother do you think it is? Which brother steps up here? It's Judah. Yeah, it's the same brother that we talked about all last 
weak. The same brother whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery. The brother whose story went downhill from there and whose life got turned around by God through a very unexpected interaction with his daughter-in-law. If you missed last week's podcast, grab that. But we're starting to see this. We're starting to see more and more and more in the story that Judah really just might be a changed man. So now the brothers are back on the road to Egypt, and when they arrive, much, much to their surprise, Joseph greets them and arranges a feast for them in his home. But here's an odd fact. When they're served, when they sit down for this feast in Joseph's home, which is already sort of out of the box, when they're served, Benjamin, his portion is five times as much as all the rest of them. And again, the biblical author goes out of his way to let us know this very specific fact that Benjamin gets five times as much. And you have to wonder, why? Why? Is this because Joseph, like their dad, just loves Benjamin more? Is it? No, it's not. You see, once again, here's what's happening. Once again in this story, the youngest son is being treated as a favorite. And in this moment, Joseph is watching. He's watching. How will the older brothers respond? How will they deal with another little brother that father loves best, getting special privileges and gifts that they don't get? He's asking, will jealousy and envy still win over in their hearts? Has anything in my brother's hearts changed? Well, the story continues. Chapter 44 begins, and all 11 of them now load up to go back to Canaan. They're all going home. It's good news, and they still aren't really sure why, because they don't know who he is, but Joseph is being extraordinarily generous with them. He's sending them home with not only tons of grain, but all they need, but also with all of their money. He does not make them pay for any of it. But then, they're not too far down the road, when suddenly, one of Joseph's stewards catches them and accuses them of stealing one of his master's silver cups. One of Joseph's silver cups is missing. And since they all know that none of them would have done this, they deny it. And a deal is made. If the cup is found in any of their bags, that brother to whom the bag belongs will become a slave. And we hearken back to Joseph. Well, Joseph has, of course, had the cup planted in Benjamin's bag. And now the real drama begins because Joseph says, all right, he stole the cup. The rest of you can go. But Benjamin, he's staying here with me. And now here we are again. These same brothers with the younger, favorite, privileged, pampered brother. And they can get rid of him. They can save their own hides by releasing him into slavery. They did it before, and now Joseph will watch. He'll get to see if his brothers have changed at all. A famous rabbi from the Middle Ages who wrote about this passage once said, A true penitent is one who commits a sin and later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin but refuses. A true penitent is one who commits a sin and later is given an opportunity to commit the same sin but refuses. That's true remorse. That's real repentance. And guess who stands up again? 
Guess, guess which brother shows the kind of a heart that Joseph has been hoping and yearning and longing and praying for. It's Judah. Judah, whose very idea it was to sell him into slavery. Judah, who has made bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. That Judah, the worst brother of all, stands up and makes what's been called the longest and most impassioned speech in the entire book of Genesis. And as Judah pours out his heart to Joseph, and talks about his father's love for Benjamin, we notice something. We notice something in, Ju- in Judah's speech to Joseph. We notice that he never says, Joseph, please don't do this thing because my father loves me. We notice that he never says, please don't do this thing because our father loves all of us so much. No, he never says that. Once again, all he talks about is Jacob's unbalanced love for his youngest son. And we realize that Jacob, Judas' dad, still has his issues, issues that go way back to his own childhood, and they may never, ever be fully fixed. But Judah, he understands where the road of envy and resentment leads. He's been down that path before. And in this moment, we see this. We learn this about Judah, and do not miss this point. He has learned to love and honor his father in spite of his father's issues. He has learned to love and honor his father in spite of his father's issues. Because, friends, that is part of the reconciliation process as well. That is often part of what reconciliation needs. Not just waiting for people to become perfect, but learning to love them even as they continue to work out their flaws. And let me just stop here for a moment and say, maybe that's you today. Maybe that one truth is the whole reason you came to church this morning. I know you were tempted to say, it's a little cold, the roads might be icy, you know they're not, and you were tempted to skip, but you came. God, the Holy Spirit got you out of bed, all dressed and fed, and you got here, right? And maybe the reason for that is just to hear those words. Reconciliation sometimes calls us to love and honor people even though they are still working through their flaws. And maybe this morning God is asking you or calling you or inviting you to love someone or to honor someone in your life, perhaps even pursue reconciliation with them, even though they are still deeply flawed and working through their issues. By the way, as just another kind of side note, I would say that is actually a wonderful definition for marriage. Learning to love someone or honor someone or perhaps even pursue constant and continuous reconciliation with someone who is still working through their issues. Did you write that down, honey? Perfect. (laughs) Because you're married to someone with lots of issues. (laughs) So Judah passionately pleads with Joseph and in the end he says this. He passionately pleads with Joseph, do not do this thing. And at the very end of this long, impassioned, wonderful speech, he says these words, and this is the climax of the entire Joseph narrative right here. Two verses. Now then, this is 
Judah speaking to his brother Joseph. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. You see, Judah says, let me take the place of my brother. Let me take the place of my brother Benjamin. I will be the one to go to prison. I will be the slave. I will suffer on his behalf. Please, levy your punishment against me, not him. One author I read this week said, am I my brother's keeper? That's the question that has haunted Genesis from Cain and Abel and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau and every time the answer has been no. I am not my brother's keeper. But finally, here in this story, for the very first time, with the full awareness of the consequences, this ancient haunting question is answered correctly. Yes! Yes, I am my brother's keeper. And it's answered at great cost by probably the worst of all the brothers, Judah. And now, with this confession, with this plea, with this declaration, please let me be the slave instead of Benjamin. Joseph now knows that his brother's hearts have changed. He knows they are no longer the same men they were before. That reconciliation is truly a possibility. Listen to this. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. You know, one thing you'll notice is that there is more crying in this story than in any other story in the Bible. Over and over again, he just weeps. He has to remove himself. He has to step aside just so, so that he can, because he cannot control himself, because he just has to sob openly. Why? Because, friends, reconciliation is hard. Reconciliation happens with the people you love and care about most who have hurt you, who have damaged you, or who you have hurt and damaged. Reconciliation, friends, takes courage and grit and a willingness to be emotionally vulnerable, to put yourself out there one more time with people that have betrayed you and broken your trust. And again, I think this is why so many people in our world, so many people in the church, opt for something less. Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And that last phrase there kind of strikes me. It's actually kind of funny, but it's also so honest. In case you're wondering, guys, which brother Joseph I am, oh yeah, I'm the one you sold to Egypt, that Joseph brother. Like, they had a different one, you know? And I don't think he was trying to be humorous there. In fact, I think there's something else going on. You see, sometimes we use the phrase, you'll hear this, forgive and forget. But I want to say those two things are not the same. In fact, if you forget something, 
you cannot forgive it. Joseph here doesn't forget. He doesn't live in denial. He doesn't excuse or rationalize what they did. He doesn't pretend that it didn't deeply hurt and wound him. And by the way, next week we'll dive more into how Joseph is able to truly forgive his brothers. But for now, I'll just say this again. This is crucial because attempts at reconciliation in our world, in your world and my world, can be damaging if they are done too quickly or hastily or in a way where one of the parties has not had time to honestly deal with their emotions. Another reason reconciliation is often hard is this is not a past or a fast and painless process. See, what Joseph is saying here is this. Yeah, what you guys did to me, it was hard, it was tough, it was damaging, and I have had to really face and work that through. I am not just sweeping it under the rug. And so, through sobs and wails, he says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And you think about how much hurt and pain is woven into that one statement. I'm your brother the one you sold into Egypt. And then they spend some time together. They celebrate. They talk and share. We're not given a lot of the details. But then eventually Joseph sends them home with everything they need, with all the supplies they need. And then it says this in verse 22. It says that Joseph, to each of them, to each of the brothers, he gave new clothing and I just really like to imagine that maybe, just maybe, he sat them all down individually and gave each one of them a very colorful, ornate robe. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That's just extra. That's just me having fun with the text. But I do love the fact that these brothers who stripped this man of his clothing, he is now putting new clothes on them. Well, we fast forward, and the entire family has now moved to Egypt, come there to live under Joseph's provision and his protection, and their father has joined them. And later in the story, Jacob, dad, he's dying, and he calls all of his sons to him, and, and he gives them a blessing. He gives a blessing to each one of his sons, and you can read those blessings in chapter 49 of Genesis. But the one thing that scholars point out about these blessings is that the most important one the most significant one, the, the one most worthy of noting, the best blessing of all, does not go to Joseph. It doesn't even actually go to beloved little Benjamin. Jacob's most important blessing is offered to Judah. And he says things like, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You see, the scepter, the crown, the king of kings, the kings of Israel, they will not come from Joseph or Benjamin or Simeon or Reuben. They will come from Judah. And what we realize in this moment, when we pan back and we look at the larger narrative of Scripture, is that this entire reconciliation story has actually been more about the redemption of Judah than Joseph. 
See, we've been in this series now for six weeks. Joseph from dreams to destiny. And we're just now realizing that we have titled the book wrong. This whole series should be called Judah. From treachery and immorality to redemption and a future. Sure, God has used this story to do some amazing things in Joseph's life. There is no arguing that. I'm sure the brothers, in the same way, are not the same. I'm even hopeful, and there's evidence to support, that Jacob, even Jacob, has been transformed. However, it is the redemption and transformation and reconciliation of Judah's heart that ultimately gets the focus in the larger scope of Scripture. And here's the point I want to make. This is the point that's really, really been heavy on me this week as I've kind of dove into this part of the story and I've discovered some things that I never knew. The reconciliation stories of your life, the reconciliation stories that you have engaged in and the ones you haven't engaged in yet, the ones that are just out there that are potentials for you, the reconciliation stories of your life, they are not just about you. God longs for you to do the hard work of reconciliation because that work will not only benefit you, help you become the person he longs for you to be, but they will also spill out into and impact the lives of countless people that you may not even be able to imagine. You see, all this stuff that Joseph has gone through, all this redeeming and reconciling work that God has done in his heart, perhaps the greatest impact, perhaps the most significant thing to come out of this entire story is the reconciliation, not of Joseph, but of his depraved older brother, Judah. And the reason for that is that one day, a child will be born in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. And he will be called the Lion of Judah. And when he becomes a man on Palm Sunday, he'll ride into Jerusalem, not on a stallion, the symbol of military power, but he'll ride in on a donkey, the symbol of peace and reconciliation, because he will be this world's ultimate reconciler. And he, like his great, 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 great grandfather Judah, many hundreds of years before him, will say, let the punishment fall on me. Let the cross come to me. I will drink this cup of suffering because I am my brother's keeper. I am the one who will suffer and sacrifice and reconcile all of humanity to God and to one another. You see, that's the larger story that God is working in ways that we could never see or imagine to reconcile this world to himself. The good news, the gospel, the greatest story of all, the, the story of this entire book, not just the Joseph story, but the story of this entire book is summed up in one little verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. You see what the gospel does for us is reconcile us to God, but what the gospel does to us is make us recon people of reconciliation in the world. I'll say that again. 
What the gospel does for us is reconcile us to God, but what the gospel does to us is make us people of reconciliation in the world. And so let me ask you just two questions this morning before we go. One, have you been reconciled to God? Not just do you believe in God, not just is he out there, not just if you raised your hand, but are you, have your, has your life been reconciled to the King of Kings? Has the Lion of Judah come in and taken your place on the cross? Not just so that your sins can be forgiven, but so that you can be reconciled once again to your Heavenly Father, so that your relationship with Him can be made right again, now and for all eternity. Have you been reconciled to the God of the universe? That's made possible, friends, but very simply, by the great reconciler, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again from the grave to pay your penalty that you deserve, to offer life that God longs for you to have in the very, very simple way that you can receive that gift of life and be reconciled to your heavenly Father is simply by, in a very sincere way, in your heart making this statement is the most simple and basic of all Christian confessions. Jesus is Lord. And I'll add one word to it. Jesus is my Lord. To just make that declaration and you can be reconciled again to your heavenly father. To just say, Jesus, you are in charge. You're calling the shots. You are Lord. You are king. You are ruler of my life. You are the one who directs and guides my paths. That decision will reconcile you to God forever. That's question one. Have you been reconciled to God? Question two that this story begs to ask. Who is God asking you to move into a relationship of reconciliation with? Maybe this morning, someone just keeps coming to mind. There's a name or a face that just keeps floating through your brain. As much as you don't want to think about them or don't want to engage it, the Holy Spirit just keeps bringing them up. And there's someone who at one time you loved or trusted or in deep relationship with, but things went south somewhere and you are no longer connected. You are no longer in relationship. And this morning, all morning, God has been saying, it's time to move into a ministry of reconciliation. It's time to get things back the right way. It may seem hard. It may seem difficult. I'm sure it does not seem fun. But God is saying, you need to be like Joseph and you need to move towards reconciliation. You know, maybe there's a person that hurt you. There's a person that deeply wounded you. Chances are there's someone close to you. And you need to ask God, Lord, is it time to start loving them? in spite of the flaws I still see in them? Maybe it's an honest prayer. Lord, are they ready? Am I ready, God? Just an honest prayer. Am I ready to move into that kind of a relationship? Would that be wise? Maybe you need to ask some trusted friends. Or maybe you're the one who did the damage. Maybe as you think about it, you're the one who caused the hurt or the pain and you need to embrace this word, remorse. Remorse. Maybe you're in here today and you're a parent and you hurt one of your kids and they've come to you and they've said, you hurt me. And man, that's like, that seems so personal and you're so quick to be defensive or bristly or to push back against that or to just distance yourself. But 
Maybe God is saying, no, you don't have to. You don't have to be defensive. I love you. This is a safe place. In me, it is safe to explore that you may not have been perfect. And maybe God is calling you into a ministry of reconciliation to a place where you would restore some relationships by the power of Jesus Christ, fueled by his reconciling power in you. Is God bringing someone to mind in your heart today? In just a minute, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to open up the tables, and you get a chance to just come and receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And this is just a, a chance of declaring these two realities. God, you have done the reconciling work in my life. You are Lord. I am connected to you, not because I'm good enough or smart enough or because enough people like me, but because of who you are and what you've done for me. And you get to declare that, but you also get to say, God, would you use that power, that power that raised Jesus from the dead, would you fuel me and empower me to be a reconciler in this world. And Holy Spirit, would you show me if there's someone that you're leading me to? So I invite you to just take a few minutes and just simply ask God, what did you need me to hear from today's message? What did you need me to hear from this story of Judah and Joseph? And then maybe ask him for the faith and the courage to take a step in that direction as you come forward to the table to receive the body and blood of Christ. Let me pray, and then the tables will be open. You can receive the elements on your own. Father, I pray for two people this morning, not just two, but two kinds of people today, specifically people who need to declare you are Lord. Tear down any questions, hesitations, fears, insecurities that they may feel, and empower them to make that declaration strong and mightily in their minds right now, God, that they would just say to you, you are Lord, you are King, I surrender to you. I receive your death and resurrection. And then, God, I pray for that your spirit would bring to mind people for us that we need to do the hard work of getting back into right relationship with, that you would give us wisdom and courage and perseverance and grace and mercy and all that we will need for that journey that lies ahead and that you would remind us constantly that you're, you're with us along the way. So we thank you, God. We thank you. We love you. We trust you. Come to the table humbled by who you are and encouraged by your grace. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.